This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Muller, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Rod Dreher is senior editor at the American Conservative, where he writes on social issues and religion in the public square. Dreher's written or served as an editor for the New York Post, National Review, The Washington Times, and other newspapers, including the Dallas Morning News. He's written for a variety of other publications, including the Wall Street Journal, the Los Angeles Times, and First Things. He's appeared on NPR's All Things Considered and many other media programs and is the author of several books, including The Little Way of Ruthie Lemming and How Dante Can Save Your Life. His most recent book is The Benedict Option, A Strategy for Christians in a Post-Christian Nation. Rod Dreher, welcome to Thinking in Public. Rod, the entire thesis of your book is that we're now in a changed situation as Christians in the context of North America, of the United States of America. And you point to several historical developments of which we are all acutely aware in making that point. But, uh, but just state your thesis as, as, uh, as clearly as, uh, as you might to someone uh, who, who has no idea actually why you wrote this book. I believe that we are on the edge of, and in fact, within the collapse of Western civilization. It's a very comfortable collapse because we're rich, but it's collapsing nonetheless in the same way that the Roman civilization collapsed in in the West in the 5th century. I believe that Christians now have got to realize that we're living in a post-Christian civilization and take measures to build a kind of ark for ourselves with which to ride out the dark ages, to hold on to our faith and tender the faith for such a time as uh, as light returns and, the, and civilization wants to hear the gospel again. Yeah, you know, I think when you look at this uh, in, in terms of speaking of a post-Christian culture, there's a sense in which that conversation goes back even to at, at least the early decades of the 20th century. Right. T.S. Eliot called, said Absolutely. we were living in a post-Christian culture. Yeah, and there were other intellectuals at the time who both thought it was a good and a horrible development uh, mm-hmm. on both sides. Uh, I mean, Nietzsche, fam- most famously, you might say, announced the beginning of a post-Christian age. But, uh, you know, the metaphor that I sometimes see used economically is that of an iceberg, and, and that is that icebergs that melt tend to melt very slowly. And uh, it seems that we're now on the uh, the rather acute side of that melt. Right. The uh, the ice crack, the crack in the iceberg is mm-hmm. is coming acute. I think that one of, for me personally, and I know this is something that meant a lot to you, was in 2005, Christian Smith's book about moralistic therapeutic deism that really showed the, the, uh, the shallowness of American Christianity. And I had to realize I was raised in the 70s, uh, sort of a go-along to get-along Christian, and I realized this is what I was raised with. And it's okay when, you, when everybody's a Christian around you, but when suddenly people are walking away from the faith, you realize you have no roots, and that's where we are now. That's why so many millennials are greater than any, in, in anything in recorded history are walking away from the faith. You know, when thinking about a post-Christian culture, many Christians, uh, or for that matter, perhaps even secular folk, misunderstand what we mean by that. We don't mean that Christianity is, at this point, illegal. Uh, we don't mean that there are no gospel-preaching churches. We don't mean that Christianity has been expunged, uh, some kind of, uh, of intellectual cleansing. What we do mean is that it now lacks binding authority in a culture where it once had that binding authority, where once it was the primary uh, superstructure of moral accountability and even of, of meaning and being, 
And uh, it's now relegated to, uh, you know, I remember what Stephen Carter of Yale said years ago when he said God's now a hobby. You know, hmm. it, it's, it, it's now a personal preoccupation. There's no binding cultural traction. Yeah, God is not the center of American culture or of Western civilization anymore. But it's easy to think that this is alarmist when you look around you, especially if you live in the South, as I do, and see churches everywhere. But go inside those churches. Talk to the people about what they know about the historic Christian faith. You'll often find it's very, very thin. And I think that the loss of faith among the elites in society is huge. Uh, Christianity is now a minority position, and in many places at the at the highest levels of our society, it's considered bigotry. Orthodox Christianity is considered bigotry. This is not going to get any better. No, it's not going to get any better. And I think, uh, I, I think, go back to the metaphor of the melting iceberg. Uh, the last part melts a lot quicker than the first part, uh, and uh, there, there's not much place to stand. And uh, you know, when I, when I think about this in terms of the uh, the binding authority of Christianity. Uh, evaporating from the culture, and then you mentioned the elites. Of course, you could go back to the uh, the, the 18th century and find evidence of some artistic and literary figures, who, who philosophical figures, who held such a view. Accelerated even during the Victorian age uh, in the uh, English-speaking world. But uh, what we now have is the fact that it turns out that the revolutions of the 60s and the 70s um, were a lot bigger than we knew at the time. That's right. That's right. But, you know, a lot of Christians think that this all started in the 60s. If we could just get back to the 50s, that was the golden age. Well, the 60s could not have happened if not for the 50s, if everything had been solid in the 50s. My argument in the book is this has been going on for centuries. We've been building this increasing secularization for centuries, and we're just now living out the fruits of things that happened in this culture, uh, in the Enlightenment especially, and in the Industrial Revolution. This is not a time for panic, but it is a time for Christians to take seriously the times we're in, to read the signs of the times, and to respond in a responsible way, in a clear way, in a patient way. And I use St. Benedict of Nursia, the the 6th century saint, who was a Christian who lived through the fall of the Roman Empire. He was born four years after the empire officially fell, and he went down to Rome to get his education saw it was completely corrupt, it was falling apart. He went out to the woods to pray. He lived in a cave for three years and asked God to show him what to do with his life. He ended up coming out and founding a monastic order. That monastic order he founded ended up, over the next few centuries, spreading like wildfire throughout Western Europe. And what they did was prepare the way for the civilization to, for civilization to return to Western Europe. They tendered within those monasteries the, uh, the, the scriptures, the, the, the prayers, the liturgies, and the old ways of doing things. And so they became a sort of ark that traveled over the dark sea of time until it found dry land and there was light after the darkness. I want to get to the Benedict Option, the title of your book, and uh, really the thematic proposal that you bring. But first I want to go back a bit because I think part of the, part of the brilliance of your book uh, is the, the, the beginning of it with the analysis that sets the stage. And uh, that's the way any good book should be written. Any good thesis uh, should, be, should be introduced. And in, in terms of the, the secular turn and how we end up in a situation where Christianity that had once been the predominant, if not uh, the solitary frame of reference, then became one frame of reference among others, and is now a frame of reference, a truth claim, a comprehensive view of life that is repudiated by the elites, 
We've both written a great deal about the fact that it was the Obergefell decision in 2015 by the Supreme Court legalizing same-sex marriage that really is kind of the the absolute declaration of this uh, secular domination. That's true. It was the Waterloo of the culture war for our side. And even before Obergefell, we had the Indiana RIFRA debacle with the Religious Freedom Restoration Act in Indiana, uh, which the Governor Pence and the Republicans tried to pass to extend this nominal protection to uh, Christians and others in case they got sued for discrimination. And they, it, the whole world came down on their head, especially big business. And this was the first time in the culture war that big business had taken a side and they sided thoroughly and completely and decisively against Christians, and the Republican Party did not know what to do with itself. That right there was when I started hearing from Christians all over the country saying, wow, all this stuff you've been saying about a post-Christian country, I think it's really true. Yeah, I think, uh, uh, at least the way I see it, much of corporate America had already taken sides in the culture war, but they had done so very carefully and self-protectively in terms of their own policies and, uh, and and even some of their lobbying. But after Obergefell, they felt a license to be openly hostile to Christianity. That's and, right. uh, and it's not just this – when you talk about uh, a post-Christian culture, we're not talking about people coming in, uh, you know, using force of law to put padlocks on our churches. We're talking about the NCAA saying to a state like North Carolina – uh, we're just going to completely repudiate you and your entire state morally because you're on the wrong side of this uh, of this cultural and moral divide. Right, and we're talking about places like Gordon College not uh, being allowed to send their education students right. into the Lynn, Massachusetts public schools to help out these, this poor school system because they're on the wrong side of LGBT as far as the city government of Lynn is concerned. This is a thing that a lot of Christians don't appreciate, really, that even if we maintain our religious liberty and law, and please God, let us do that, that still gives big business license to discriminate against us in many ways. For example, uh, if a Christian college holds the line on uh, Orthodox Christian teaching on sexuality, their degrees may not be worth much. No company will want to hire those, those graduates, perhaps. This is the kind of the way that even outside of law, but in custom and in culture, Christians become more and more marginalized and pushed out of the public square. And I tell you, it's coming. A lot of us, like you and me, and we, we follow this stuff, and we see what's, what's happening. We see the gathering storm, and it's time for us to wake up the people. Yeah, it sometimes uh, amazes me just to ask the question, what would it take to wake up people? Because, you know, it's one thing. If these kinds of uh, developments are coming in Scandinavia, it's another thing when they're coming in the United States and and perhaps even more ominously right across the northern border where, for instance, uh, Canada only has one major evangelical higher education institution, uh, Trinity Western University, and uh, they had a law school. But there are entire uh, provinces of uh, of Canada where the law degree is not recognized simply because the university has a Christian hiring policy. And, and so the law degree is worthless. Yeah. And things like in my own city, Baton Rouge, Louisiana, a friend of mine who's a pastor there said that uh, one of his parishioners came to him and said, you've got to help me. My seventh grader came home from public school and said, mom, I'm a boy. And the mom was shocked and went to see the guidance counselor and said, what's happening to my daughter? The guidance counselor said, hey, you got to get with the times and respect your son for who he is. This is not San Francisco. This is not New York City. This is Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And we have got to pull our heads out of the sand. 
you know, just in recent days, I brought attention to the fact that the New York Times ran an article celebrating the uh, transgender policy change of the Boy Scouts of America. And uh, in, in the final paragraph, the editors of the New York Times said, this just means that the Boy Scouts are going to be recognizing transgender boys for what they are, colon, boys. And, uh, and you look at that and you go, I honestly believe that very few people in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, are buying that. But they have the moral power of everything behind the New York Times now, not to mention the moral authority invested in the Boy Scouts of America. It's going to be the same in Baton Rouge as anywhere else, including Berkeley. Well, and local standards don't mean nearly as much as they did when you and I were younger. I remember when I was growing up in the 70s, the only place that I heard in my small in the small town south – about uh, uh, anything remotely related to the gospel in terms of racial bigotry and in terms of standing against racism was on television. And that undermined the teaching that was just general in my culture. And that was a good thing. But now I I realize that there's so many ways, uh, so many avenues through social media, through the internet, for all kinds of teaching to come into the imaginations of kids, teachings that uh, Christian parents don't want their kids to to have access to, and parents are ignorant about it and just letting it happen. You know, in your opening chapter, and indeed uh, just uh, getting ready to make your thesis, uh, you indict American Christianity before Obergefell, let's just say in in, in the generations before Obergefell. And you, you look back at the, uh, at the movement known as the religious right, and uh, you make the statement that the religious right seemed to have a great deal of moral energy, but people in the pews didn't have a great deal of moral energy beyond just uh, some affirmative positions on abortion and sexuality. Right, right. And I consider myself a member of the religious right insofar as I am a religious and political mm-hmm. conservative. But when I think of the religious right, I think of pastors and activists who – Uh, got congregations wound up to be values voters and to get out there and pull the lever for a Republican candidate. If we just capture politics, if we capture the courts, we'll capture the culture. Meanwhile, the liberals and the cultural left were capturing the imaginations of our children and of the American people. And we didn't have anything, uh, the, the religious conservatives of an earlier generation didn't have anything to push back on them, on, against them with, except politics. Well, you know, Cult, uh, politics is downstream from culture, and I think we see now the fruit of having ignored church history, having ignored doctrine, having ignored strict catechesis uh, in favor of politics and pop culture. Yeah, I think this could easily go both ways, and uh, I appreciate the balance by the time you get to the end of your book on this, because I too, I just have to say, I was uh, I was very much involved in what would now be called the religious right, and uh, I, I I push back on many of the critiques of the religious right that act as if it were merely uh, merely political, somehow power hungry, uh, and uh, and and for that matter, foolhardy. I, I can just say that uh, there appeared to be the opportunity uh, in the late 1970s and especially in the 1980s to bring about the kind of changes you and I would both want to see take place by means of politics. But it is the culture that determines the politics, not the politics that determines the culture in, in terms of the major dynamic and, and trajectory. And uh, what we did not realize is that American culture had shifted far beyond the presuppositions that would make the kind of moral recovery we hope for sensible. And, uh, and furthermore, it may be even possible, but furthermore, uh, just in terms of 
the understanding of these moral principles held by many Christians who held the right position on abortion and same-sex marriage and other things was, uh, was so thin that uh, it actually couldn't withstand the messaging that comes from a consumerist materialistic culture that was already giving itself to personal autonomy more than anything else, the lordship of the individual. Sure. Individualism is the religion, the real religion of, of all Americans. Uh, I tell my friends, my Christian friends who can't believe that we have same-sex marriage, I say, look, we had same-sex marriage because we have free divorce. Absolutely. And because promiscuity became rampant even among Christians. And uh, so when gays came out and said, hey, we just want mm-hmm. the th- same thing you have – We didn't know what to say to them because we had based our own idea of marriage at courtship on individual expression. And we we were a paper tiger. That's simply what happened. We were a paper tiger. And uh, you can't reason uh, with people who think that emotivism, the idea that the way I feel about something means it's true or false – well, that, that took place and that took hold in American culture after the 60s. Alistair McIntyre, the Notre Dame philosopher, he was a Marxist when he wrote this in 1981 or 82, but he wrote this book after virtue, later became a Christian. And after virtue, he said that we are in a position in the West now where we have no basis, no common authority with which to decide right and wrong. No society that is in that condition will be able to cohere. And so politics is going to become ever more angry and irresolvable because we don't have a common basis with which to reason. I wouldn't have understood that back then. This was the the beginning of the Reagan years. It looked like we were on a roll. But boy, was he prophetic. I was assigned Alistair McIntyre's After Virtue when I was a graduate student. And uh, I think it's probably one of the two or three books to which I return most often And uh, I can go back and look at how I read it when it was new, what I highlighted and marked. And I look back and think, you read that in the early 1980s. How can you now be shocked by what you're saying? But it did not seem possible that the world where, for instance, most Southern Baptists and most evangelicals lived could possibly yet be there. Well, because McIntyre saw – the view from 30,000 feet. We couldn't see over the horizon, but he could. And now we're just living out the, uh, the fruit of what he saw back then. Absolutely. I want to go back to that statement that I, I mentioned uh, I appreciated so much in the beginning because your exact wording is very important here. And a, a part of the, the power of your, uh, of your argument is the lucidity of your prose. Uh, you wrote, uh, even though conservative Christians were said to be fighting a culture war, with the exception of the abortion and gay marriage issues, it was hard to see my people, putting up much of a fight. We seemed content to be the chaplaincy to a consumerist culture that was fast losing a sense of what it meant to be Christian. Um, I think that's really an important indictment. I think that's that's largely true. I think it's irrefutable, as a matter of fact. Well, and Christian Smith, in some of his later work after the uh, moralistic therapeutic deism research, he found that interviewing Christian kids alone, uh, young adults, 18 to 23, 61 percent of them had no problem with materialism and consumerism. Uh, an additional 31 percent of them said they do have some problem with it, but not much of one. That leaves 9 percent of confessing Christians saying that, yeah, materialism and consumerism, that's a problem for me as a Christian. Nine percent. This is a, a people of God that has been conquered by the culture. 
you know, we've both given so much attention to that uh, Christian Smith research over the years, and, and it's just brilliant, partly because he's dealing with the same group of young people uh, over a long period of time. And uh, this moralistic therapeutic deism becomes so important to us because that MTD, the, the, the idea of the faith of these Christian young people being reduced to moralism, the therapeutic, and a form of practical deism, what is the great indictment there? is not the young people, but the fact that they got it from their parents and they got it from their churches. Sure, sure. I heard a few years ago from a reader of my blog who wrote me and said when Christian Smith's book came out in 2005, he read about moralistic therapeutic deism and a light bulb went off over his head. He said, this is our church. This is our Sunday school. So he was involved in his church. He sat down and and wrote a new program for Sunday school Uh, much deeper in doctrine, much deeper in church history to give the kids some meat, some red meat to hold on to. He took it to the Sunday school board, five parents there, and they chewed him up. They threw out what he proposed. They said that we don't need this. These weren't liberals. These were all conservatives, but they did not think that doctrine and all this was was necessary. Everything seems fine now. Let's just continue as we are. Well, now we see where that leads. You use the language of Michael Walzer that uh, I also have to use over and over again. And, of course, he was talking about moral theory, but uh, you apply it, as do I, to theology and church life, the distinction between thick and thin uh, forms of, uh, of belief. And I think we all knew that nominal cultural Christianity uh, represented a very thin Christianity. I think our hope was that somewhere— there was a fairly large number of believers who held to a thick Christianity, a deeply informed, deeply thoughtful, doctrinal, biblically enriched, um, well, Christianity. And uh, it turns out, like that iceberg shrinking so fast, it, it turns out that that number is evidently a lot smaller than what we at least hoped it might have been. Right. I I came to Christ as an adult uh, through the Roman Catholic Church in my mid-20s. And I, I, in large part, read my way into the Roman Catholic Church from being an agnostic atheist teenager. And um, I remember when I entered the Roman Catholic Church, I had all these ideas from my books and from reading Richard John Newhouse and first things about what the Roman Catholic Church was. It was the church of John Paul II. When you get into the actual parishes, you realize that this is mainline Protestantism. You know, and I don't, I don't mean to disparage Catholicism. I'm no longer a Catholic. I'm an Eastern Orthodox Christian, and our churches are not necessarily any better. But uh, I think it's a temptation for intellectuals who love to talk about ideas and read books of theology and philosophy to think that this is what we're going to encounter at the local church. And it's just not so. I mean, it, we, that's not to say that everybody needs to sit around and, you know, be the, the diet of worms or, you know, talking about, um, uh, about theology and arguing about heresy and things like that. That's not real life. But, but our pastors and our teachers and we ourselves have starved ourselves for generations. And now our, we've given our kids stones and when they need bread. Rod Dreher enjoys a privileged position in terms of cultural observation, but he also has a hard-earned reputation for his candor and for his insight in writing about some of the most important cultural, political, and ethical issues of the day. 
His book, Crunchy Conservatism, caught the particular moment in American conservatism as a movement now some years ago, and now on the other side of what appears to be at least the precipice of a great cultural divide, he's written a new book with one of the most provocative titles and an even more provocative thesis rightly understood. That's why we need to talk to him about the Benedict Option. raised a host of issues we need to talk about, but I want to get to the thesis of your book, The Benedict Option. And uh, I, I want you to talk about the argument as you make it in the book. You're calling for following the example of Benedict. And by the way, you point back to McIntyre sure. saying that uh, perhaps hope would come out of the uh, arising of a new Benedict. And uh, you're calling for a, a new mode of Christian monasticism, but I, I think that can be misunderstood, so I want you to explain it. Uh, thanks for that opportunity, because the first thing people say is, oh, are you saying we ought to all head for the hills and build bunkers? No, I'm not saying that. Where the idea of the Benedict Option comes from is a famous last paragraph of McIntyre's book, After Virtue, in which he talks about the times we're in now are like the fall of the Roman Empire. Uh, and he says, if we look back to that time, we can see that there were men and women of goodwill who quit trying to shore up the empire and instead sought to find new ways of continuing life in community where they could live out the virtues. McIntyre says we need to do that today. He said the world is waiting for a new and doubtless quite different St. Benedict. Well, I, I recognize the validity of McIntyre's critique, and as a Christian, I'm thinking, well, what would a Benedict today look like? The historical Benedict, as I, I said earlier, left Rome, the city of Rome, uh, moved out to the woods to pray and seek God's will, founded a monastic movement that, that was tremendously important in preserving and spreading Christianity through the Dark Ages, through barbarian Western Europe. Um, of course, it became corrupted later. This happens with every human institution. But every Christian today, Protestant, Catholic, Orthodox, who lives in the West, owes an incalculable debt to those Benedictine monks. But today, we lay Christians are not called to be monks. We're called to live in the world. But how can we live in the world in such a way that is sufficiently countercultural, that enables us to hold on to the faith and not only to survive, but to thrive in a time of great chaos and hostility to the faith? Uh, I, what I call the Benedict option is a, a sort of a blanket term referring to Christians, the choice that we all have to make now to be countercultural, to quit trying to shore up the imperium and instead focus on building new forms of local community, uh, churches, uh, Christian schools, things like that, that will thicken our relationship to each other and make our roots go deeper in the gospel and in the Christian tradition so we can survive these dark ages that are to come. It's important to add, too, St. Benedict did not go out to the forest seeking the Lord because he wanted to save Western civilization. He went out to seek the Lord because he wanted to seek the Lord and because he wanted to figure out how can I live, live faithful to him in community. His answer for himself and others who felt the call to monasticism was a monastic movement. I, what I hope happens with the publication of this book is that serious Christians who can read the signs of the times, again, Protestant, Catholic, and Orthodox, will come together within their own communities and even across denominational lines to say, hey, we're in a bad situation. How can we build the structures now that will enable us 
to live out the faith even under persecution and not lose it and keep it alive until such time as the dark age we're entering now is over. And you do such a, a good job of describing the dark age without appearing to be merely a declinist, uh, as uh, was the case of some in the 20th century who acted as if salvation could only come by Western civilization. And if that civilization is lost, then humanity has no hope. That's profoundly unchristian. On the other hand, there are those who say, well, if Western civilization goes, then, uh, then what's the loss? Well, the loss is massive uh, in terms of human flourishing and human goods. It's, it's massive in terms of, uh, of the ability of, uh, of any civilization to recognize human dignity and, uh, and the structures of creation, including uh, the family. It, uh, in other words, it is not clear that there is any post-Christian alternative civilization that, uh, that can be hospitable to human values. Well, you know, some of the smarter liberals are figuring this out, and they see that we in the West have been parasitic on the Christian faith for centuries. Well, now that the Christian faith is waning, it's almost dead in, in Western Europe, and it's starting to wane significantly here in America, they don't know what to do. The, the Enlightenment, as McIntyre said, tried to found a, a, a binding ethic for society on human reason alone. Can't be done. So what do we do? I happen to believe that over time there's going to be a, it's going to be a great shaking out, a great reckoning, and people will eventually come back to the Lord. I don't know that that's going to happen in my lifetime or the lifetime of my children or their children. But when the day comes when the world is ready to hear the gospel again in the West, we have got to be there to offer it to them. And we've got to be there to offer it to people who are refugees from this post-Christian culture who are being chewed up by the sexual revolution, who will be chewed up by this economy, who will be chewed up by transhumanism and all the things that are coming. Uh, the church has to be a light in the darkness to these people, and what I'm all about in this book is figuring out how we can do that. Yeah, in a very similar line, uh, my current big project of, of writing uh, the secular moment, I'm trying to trace what I see as four stages of secularism and uh, that the, the kind of imposition of a secular worldview on the entire society. And I'm looking at that in terms of, first, the secular ascendance. And uh, we've seen that. And then secular triumphalism. And uh, we've been already seeing that very clearly as well. Then secular aggression, that third stage. And and this is where they feel fully validated, the, the elites and, and those driven by uh, these, sec these uh, secular impulses, uh, to basically silence Christians as a human good and uh, to silence certainly the influence of Christianity. But I am arguing that the fourth stage, I think we can already see coming, is secular exhaustion because they cannot perpetuate their own project. No. And it cannot deliver by definition on its promises. But the collapse of that project is going to be very painful for a lot of people. We're already seeing this now playing out in many ways. Uh, a friend of mine was discussing with her neighbor that the neighbor had gone to baby showers, uh, mm -hmm. six baby showers in the past year for all her nieces. None of them have husbands. Some of them have multiple babies by different fathers. These are white working class people who a generation ago were in church. They're not in church now, and their family systems have blown up. How did this happen so quickly? Well, the seeds were, were planted in the 50s, in the 60s, in the 70s, and now they're bearing bitter fruit. Uh, but this is somehow this has got to play itself out, and we have got to be able to offer reason and light and love and, and structure to these people. 
you mentioned Anthony Kennedy, the Supreme Court justice and the Casey decision. I was actually at the court, heard the oral arguments for that case, and uh, was still not prepared for the decision that was handed down, majority opinion by Anthony Kennedy, in, in which he offers this absolute uh, sine qua non of uh, personal autonomy and, and individual uh, self-determination as, as the only great moral good. And uh, you know, looking back at that, it, it's very clear to me and, – and by the way, appointed by a Republican president and considered by many to be conservative, but you know, it's, it's a very thin understanding uh, rather than thick. What, what I keep thinking is you know, even what he said, even what he promised – it can't possibly be delivered. And I think about the LGBTQ revolution and all this coming, the transgender issue in particular, and Paul McHugh's research. And by the way, he's just drawing from the research done by those who are even the proponents of you know, sex reassignment surgery, just demonstrating it does not lead to greater human happiness. It, it, you know, the, the rates of depression after that surgery are absolutely massive, and that's heartbreaking. But this is a revolution that cannot deliver on its promises. No, and you think about the history of the 20th century, what happened to Russia. You know, they threw out autocracy. They threw out the the church and tried to found a new utopia on completely secular values. And it was bound to fail, the Soviet Union was. But look at all the human destruction that took place over – until it finally did fail. And now we're just starting to see a resurgence of religion in the ruins, in the human wasteland that was the Soviet Union. And that's a blessing from God. But the destruction – if you ever talk to Soviet refugees, uh, and I know you must have, it's it's unbelievable. Well, it's unbelievable to look at at even a city like Moscow right now. I mean not just the gangsterism and all the rest, but – rates of alcoholism that are beyond anything we could imagine. And, of course, abortion, uh, just just as uh, perhaps even the regular form of what they would call birth control, uh, the legacy of the kind of worldview and uh, the, the totalitarian claims of the Soviet Union. They didn't die with the Soviet Union. No, and, you know, the Pope John Paul II, raised in, in Poland under Nazi occupation and then under communism, after communism fell, he warned the West. He goes, we've, we've done away with one form of, of totalitarian materialism, but don't think that you in the West, we in the West, are free of it. We're also living in a kind of softer materialism, a materialism with a human face. It's just as godless, except it's perhaps even more seductive because uh, the, the Soviet communist style was more George Orwell, but ours is more Aldous Huxley. We're amusing ourselves to death. Neil Postman from The Grave speaks. And, uh, of course, there are so many prophets who saw this in their own way, and many of them uh, only were speaking to a part of it, like Neil Postman, but a very profoundly true part of it. And uh, at the beginning, you mentioned the fact that when Benedict was witnessing the Roman Empire after it fell, so to speak, life was still relatively comfortable, certainly by contrast with, uh, with other places uh, at the time. And I think that's where we are now. We're still amusing ourselves to death. I think most American Christians, uh, you know, they still put gas in the car. They still have air conditioning. Uh, their kids can right now still become doctors and lawyers. They think, hey, what's the problem? That's right. They just don't see. Uh, one of the stories I tell in the book is about going to the Benedictine Monastery in Norcia, a small town in the mountains of central Italy. That was where St. Benedict was born. He was a son of the Roman governor. Well, there's still a monastery there today. Uh, Napoleon closed it down in 1810, but in the year 2000, some American monks 
went there and reopened it, and they they wanted to sing the traditional Latin mass, and it's become a real oasis of of, of Christian peace and beauty. Well, um, it was a it's a sort of place that you go there up in the mountains, and you really envy these men their their peace there, where they can worship and meet visitors. Well, they had an earthquake there last year. The first one that came uh, made made their monastery and their medieval basilica unstable. The government said, you need to get out of here. It's not safe for you. So they moved just outside the city to live in a hill you know, overlooking the city so they could still go down and minister to the people. But um, they didn't have to worry about the church falling on their head. Well, another earthquake came, leveled the basilica, leveled every church in town, but the monks survived. And they survived because they read the signs of the first earthquakes. They could tell that this wasn't going to be the last one. And so they moved to the hills just far enough out so they could be safe. And now, because of that, they're there for the rebuilding. And not a single person in Norcia, when that, the most powerful earthquake to hit Italy in 30 years, not a single person in Norcia died because they could read the signs and got out of there. Father Cassian, the retired prior of that monastery, says, you look at the rubble of our basilica, and that is Christianity in the West right now. Don't let this happen to you. Get out of the, of the city, so to speak. Establish your place, in a, your, your, your shelter, your monastery in a safe place so you can be there for the rebuilding. Here's the thing. They did not run off to the woods and, and go away from people entirely. They still were there to serve the people. But they were serving them from a place where the roof was not going to fall on their head and take them down with it. I read uh, the articles that you wrote in the beginning. Frankly, follow your column very closely in the American Conservative. And uh, so we've been watching you make this argument out loud for some time. And reading the book, it seems to me it's significantly different than what I might have expected in terms of some of your early articles on the Benedict Option. So let me just spell that out. Uh, you began by saying you're not calling for us to head for the hills. Uh, you just used an illustration of heading for the heading hills. Heading for the hills. Uh, and uh, as I look at those early articles in the American Conservative, it did appear you were calling more or less to he- – and those are, of course, partial arguments. So you're talking about just a few hundred words. But it, it appears you were calling to head for the hills. Nuance that a bit in terms yeah. of where you are in the book. I appreciate the chance to clarify this. And in fact, my own thinking has been clarified – uh, through exchanges with my readers, through talking with Catholics and evangelical friends and, and uh, sort of working through these ideas. When people hear head for the hills, they think, you know, to light out for the mountains and, and build the compound and, and sit there and wait for the end. I don't think we're called to that. I know I'm not called to that. Most people aren't called to that. But it does mean doing what these monks in Norcia did initially. They were living right there in the town, but they were behind monastery walls. What does that mean for us? It means that as normal as lay Christians, we have to build some kind of walls to separate ourselves from the world so that we can continue to go out into the world and minister to people and be who Christ asks us to be. The, the culture itself is so toxic and so anti-Christian that we're just not going to be able to make it if we let anybody and anything come, th- come into our into our hearts, into our imaginations. The, the monks in Norcia say, you know, we're called to be monks, but we cannot be for the pilgrims who come to this monastery what Christ asks us to be if we don't have that time away behind our walls for prayer and study and work. 
Well, I'm going to take that ethic and take it to lay Christian life. We need to have, for example, Christian schools, um, not to shelter our kids from any bad idea that comes from the outside, but uh, in order for them to be nurtured and to build that resilience within. So when they do get out into the world, they know who they are, they know what they believe and why they believe it, and more importantly, they have participated and built the practices necessary to live out this faith and get the faith in their bones. Because if the faith is only in your head, if it's only a series of arguments, you're not going to make it. You know, you talk about a, a conversation rather haunting, actually, on a Christian university or college campus where the professors were telling you that so many Christian young people come, and even though they, they basically hold to, uh, to some um, knowledge, genuine knowledge, of Christianity, it's so superficial that it tends not even to last very long inside what's defined as a Christian college or university. Oh, that's true. I mean, the the situation is horrible with Catholics, but this conversation you're recalling was on an evangelical campus, and the professors were saying, we try the best we can, but we only have these kids for four years. And these are all kids who came out of evangelical schools and evangelical churches, but this is the youth group culture. This is all it gave them was emotion and having fun. And one of those professors even said to me, you know, I, I doubt that most of our kids are going to be able to form stable families. That shocked me. I said, why is that? He said, because I've never seen it. Yeah. You know? Yeah, you know, I, I thought in reading that, once again, place still matters uh, a great deal in that uh, – and, and I mean place not just in terms of geography, but that and social context and, and, and social placement. Because I think of the students in our school, and I, I think the vast majority of them – did see an intact family. They, 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 it was still close enough to them. If they didn't come from it, then they saw it. But even in talking with students, you realize in concentric rings of their relationships, you get just one ring out and then not to mention two or three rings out, and that's very hard to find. And I think that's so well documented in something like J.D. Vance's work now where once you would have thought that uh, respect for family and uh, like a traditional Christian morality and sexuality and all of that would have been taken for granted, it's now hard to find on the ground. It really is. And I think this is why so many millennials have trouble uh, accepting the traditional Christian view of homosexuality because they look at the way their heterosexual parents and aunts and uncles and everybody around them have completely messed this thing up. And they may be on their third or fourth marriage, and yet they're going to look at the gay couple and say, no, sorry, you can't marry. That doesn't make sense to millennials because we older Christians have not been walking the walk. And that's why I believe, and I agree with Pope Benedict on this, that now in this day and age, the best apologetics for the Christian faith are not arguments, but the beauty that comes through the art the church makes and goodness as comes through the lives of the saints. So when you go to a millennial, they may not be able to ha- hear your argument and deal with it in terms of reason, but if you show them beauty uh, and that le- points to Christ, that points to the reality of God, or you show them someone who is serving the poor or doing heroic work, serving uh, unwed mothers, they can see the light of Christ through that goodness, and it may lead them ultimately to the truth. And I, I think that's the sort of thing that we need to recover as the church, is being able to speak to young Christians in an embodied way, or young or people who don't know the Lord, in an embodied way to show them that we really are, this faith is incarnate. It's not just something in our head. It's not just a bunch of moral rules or just ideas, but it is a way of life. The monks do that. 
I mean, it's it's amazing. They live incredibly regimented lives because they're they're monks. We're not again. We're not called to be monks, but we need to have more order in in our lives so that we can offer a coherent not only argument to the world, but a way of life that is fruitful and joyful. I can track your mind through time, as uh, I think others can track uh, an author's mind. And uh, so I, I make a trajectory from your work, uh, including the Crunchy Cons book, and, uh, and, and then through the very moving book you wrote about your sister and, and lessons from, uh, from her life, uh, r- right to the Benedict option. And... Uh, by the way, most of what you what you suggest in the Benedict Option, in terms of what the, you would call this kind of new monastic uh, type of uh, of understanding of Christianity and embeddedness, uh, most of it is is stuff we already know we're supposed to be doing. It's just the church being the church. But as Leah Labresco Sargent, one of my friends, who's quoted in the book, she says that hey, this is just the church being the church. But if you don't call it the Benedict Option, people aren't going to do it. So uh, this is nothing new. This is uh, we're just rediscovering an old tradition, things that our ancestors knew. And look, I I think that whether we're evangelical, Catholic, or Orthodox, we need to go back to the early church, see how our ancestors did it, see what they did, see how they embodied the faith in culture and practices. You're seeing on the evangelical side, uh, James K.A. Smith, for example, the uh, Calvin College philosopher, has written a really good book about the importance of practices. You are who you love. That's the kind of thing I'm talking about. Evangelicals may use slightly different language than Catholics or Orthodox, but ultimately it's the same thing. Well, here we are having a conversation on the 500th anniversary of the Reformation that is uh, uh, in the year 2017. And uh, I'm, as an evangelical, speaking to someone who is Eastern Orthodox and had been Catholic, and uh, we can have just about every theological conversation and controversy in the history of the Christian Church right in this room and in this conversation right now. Uh, But I I, I want to turn the tables just a little bit, and I I want to ask you a question from your vantage point, and and I know you'll be honest. Does evangelical Christianity, as you understand it, have adequate resources to be sufficiently thick? I don't know, and I'm being completely honest with you because I have—evangelicalism is one thing I haven't been. I was raised mainline Protestant in a very lukewarm church, came to Christ as a Roman Catholic, and now I'm Eastern Orthodox, but I really don't know. I mean, I, I look at evangelicals from the outside, evangelical friends who are living the life, and I think, well, they can do it. You know, why can't all evangelicals do it? But then I, in my own case, I my life is shaped around a liturgy that's been in our church since uh, for 1,500 years. My life is shaped around the chanting of psalms and, and all kinds of sensual ways that embody the faith. I mean, of course, you can have smells and bells and go straight to hell, you know, if it doesn't change you and lead you to greater conversion. But for me as an Orthodox Christian and me as a Catholic, uh, the faith had more, um, more traction, and it, it drew me in closer and closer. I don't know if evangelicals can do that, because when I look at, evan- at evangelicalism, I see uh, people who are zealous for the Lord, no doubt about it, but also susceptible to every trend that comes along. And um, Us? Yeah, well— I- <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I don't, I don't want to be insulting, but this is what I'm saying. I ask you the question. You're no, no, not being insulting. No, in my book, I, I mm-hmm. talked to an evangelical friend, Lance Kenzer. He is, uh, lives in suburban Kansas City, Kansas, was a state legislator, is a PCA Presbyterian. And 
he tells me that he didn't realize until the last couple of years that church was supposed to be about more than just going on Sunday to get a pep talk to help you go out and live real life. This has completely changed his life. He's gotten, since he had this realization, and he's, he works for religious liberty and religious liberty activism, and has come to see the enormous threat facing the Christian church in America. He's gotten more and deeply involved in his own congregation. He's leading a class in St. Augustine's City of God, which St. Augustine wrote to explain to the Romans, Absolutely. Roman Christians, hey, what happened? The empire's gone. What happened? And, uh, and Lance says that working in the local church to thicken their their ties to each other and to put their roots down more deeply in their own Reformed tradition is what's consuming him now. There but are... that's going to make the point where I, I would have to answer my own question. I do not believe evangelicalism has sufficient resources for a thick enough Christianity to survive either this epic or, or much beyond. So and, what, what and, do we do then? What do you do? You're well, it's because I, I, I think evangelicalism as an ism is a particular moment uh, in history. The, the identity has to be, as I see it, in the best way to describe the conversation between us as historic Protestants. In other words, it takes historic Protestantism. Um, in other words, I am uh, deeply, unashamedly rooted uh, in that which we mark in terms of a 500th anniversary right now. I do believe in the uh, the, the necessary reformation of the church and uh, what the Reformers taught. But modern evangelicalism lacks the theological substance, either of the Reformation or the Reformers, because the Reformers themselves, Luther and Calvin amongst them, were not at all hesitant, uh, even as they affirmed sola scriptura, and, uh, and did so with full heart and soul, to go back and cite Augustine. They knew they were standing on the shoulders of those who had come before, and they sought to make very clear they stood on the creedal consensus of historic Christianity. And thus, confessional Protestantism, I would argue, is and must be, can be sufficiently thick. But evangelicalism, uh, well, not so much. Well, you know, I, I tell you, that gives me hope to hear you say that, because I don't know evangelicalism well enough to make a solid critique of it. I know what I see as an Orthodox Christian, but I also know that the Benedict option is not going to work if I stand there and tell evangelicals, hey, leave the evangelical church, become Orthodox, or become Catholic, because I actually don't believe that that's, that's possible or feasible. And that's why I say that there's got to be resources in the Reformation tradition for Protestants to go back to. And to hear you say that really encourages me. What, what would you tell, what do you tell your students and those you lead uh, where they can find these resources within historical Protestantism? Where should they go? Well, the, the beginning point is in looking at the Reformation backwards and forwards. Uh, and so going back, there's a reason why uh, this anniversary is really important, as it was especially beginning with the 200th anniversary and the 300th. It's, uh, that, that's where Protestants remember that what was rooted in 1517 was not the establishment of a new church. It was uh, the belief, as Calvin said, that Christ has never been without his church, but that that church must be distinguished by several marks and by the preaching of a gospel that they defined under context of fire in terms of the solas and justification by faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone. How did we, on what authority? On the authority of Christ through Scripture alone. And, uh, and, and yet, as I, as I said in a lecture I gave at another seminary last week, and, and Calvin is quoting Calvin, the faith that justifies is faith alone. 
faith alone justifies, uh, but the faith that justifies is never alone. That is to say, it comes accompanied by sanctification. It, it, it comes with the fullness of the Christian faith. And looking at the Reformation backwards, we come to understand uh, its continuity with classical Christianity. And, uh, and we would make the claim all the way back to Christ and the apostles without apostolic or episcopal continuity. But uh, the resources are there. The resources that enabled the magisterial reformers to do what they did and to set in motion what they did in 1517 uh, are, I believe, rightly understood the adequate resources for Christians to be faithful in 2017. You know, what's so interesting about this conversation, these kinds of conversations, Mm -hmm. is even though I know why I'm an Eastern Orthodox Christian, I know what I believe and how it differs from what you believe and what Catholics believe, I feel like I have so much more in common with men and women like you um, who stand on a firm confession of truth. You know, truth is one. We, I don't want to be mushy about it. I think that that's a false ecumenism. But it's also the case that because we believe that truth is objective, I call people like us small o orthodox Christians. I don't want to use the word conservative, though that's what we are, because I don't want to make this just a political thing. But I believe that we have so much more to offer each other, and we can learn from each other while being faithful to our denominational distinctives. We can still help each other out, and we're going to need each other because even within our own churches— you know, you're, you're going to see apostasy. Well, indeed. And, and this is a sensitive issue for an evangelical uh, or a classical Protestant uh, in this conversation because we believe that in the uh, historic arguments between the Reformers and the Roman Catholic Church, uh, all the way down to the anathemas of Trent and beyond, and in the uh, even the, the Great Schism uh, in terms of the division between the East and the West, which would include orthodoxy, that the gospel itself is at stake. That does not mean that uh, that we do not learn from one another and do not greatly benefit from friendships and conversation with one another. Uh, but the, the the historic Protestant has to be always very careful to say our accountability is first and foremost to the gospel and make that very clear. I, I'm in a lot of conversation with Roman Catholics and uh, have, have sought deeply to understand Roman Catholicism, including studying in a Roman Catholic institution as part of my graduate work, because I want to understand Catholic theological method and the Catholic tradition, it did not make me Catholic. Uh, it did make me learn uh, respectfully uh, how the Catholic Church has struggled with many of these issues over time. And there's an ongoing conversation, because we are now on the iceberg melting together. And yes. we should not be embarrassed to be together and to be in conversation to learn from one another. And uh, and I, I felt that way very much reading your book, The Benedict Option, and uh, certainly in every conversation I've ever had with you. Oh, thank you so much. It, this is vital. As I said, we're going to need each other. And uh, I think, too, one more thing I'd like to – point I'd like to make before we go. I fell out of the Catholic faith in a very hard way, and God used to chastise me. When I converted to Catholicism, I was an adult. It was a very intellectual conversation. I was extremely prideful intellectually. I thought as long as I had the syllogism straight in my head, my faith could withstand any trial. As a journalist, years later, I began to write about the sexual abuse scandal in the Catholic Church and learned a lot. It was like staring into the Palantir and having my my mind fried. Eventually, after five years of that extremely painful uh, process, I no longer could believe in Roman Catholicism, 
uh, I was shipwrecked, and the Lord saved me uh, from that shipwreck and brought me into Eastern Orthodoxy. But he brought me in as a much humbler Christian, someone who was not willing to be so arrogant and to think that reason alone within the, the confines of the church was going was to make, make everything okay. He taught me practices. He taught me that fasting was important. He taught me that prayer was important. There's no substitute for doing it. You can sit there and read all the books of theology in the world, but if you're not doing it, if you're not living it out, if you're not making it incarnate, your conversion is is probably more shaky than you thought. I remember when I was reading my way into the Catholic Church in my early 20s, a woman I worked with at the Baton Rouge Advocate uh, was a Catholic and worked with Mother Teresa's nuns. And she said, hey, would you like to come to the soup kitchen and, and work with me? I said, okay, that sounds like a very Catholic thing to do. So I went one Saturday afternoon and I peeled potatoes. I washed uh, pans. And I thought at the end of that, well, that was really nice. But re- I'm an intellectual and I should spend all this time reading theology and apologetics. Well, 15, 17 years later when my Catholic faith was in, in ruins and I was wondering, is God even there? I realized that if I had spent as much time peeling potatoes and scrubbing pots and pans at the soup kitchen that I did with my books, maybe I would, my roots would have gone a lot deeper. Maybe I would have had the resilience. I'm not going to make that mistake as an Orthodox Christian. The Lord gave me a second chance. And I would have all your listeners realize that if they've got their head buried, heads buried in books, I love books. I write books. But it's no substitute for the life of prayer and service. Well, a classical historic Protestant can only say amen to that. Thank you, Rod, for this conversation. I'm deeply indebted to you. Thanks so much. One of the great gifts of a conversation is that it often takes off in an unexpected direction. You can plan what you expect to talk about and how you might think that a conversation might proceed, but you're likely to find out that in the engagement between two people and two minds, the conversation is going to take some unexpected directions. Now, when I began the conversation with Rod Dreher, I wanted him to define the Benedict option in his own terms, and that he did. But it also afforded us an opportunity to talk about the issues behind the Benedict option, and we also got to talk about his own mind in motion as he developed the thesis and, in conversation with many others, brought himself to the point of the release of the book. Now, the book is very important. I want to commend it to every thinking Christian. We ought to read this book, and we ought also to read far beyond the title. One of my concerns is that many people will misread the project and misread the proposal as being something of a license for merely exiting the cultural conversation, for forfeiting cultural responsibility. Instead, in a far more sophisticated and faithful way, Rod Dreher actually points to our responsibility for a different mode of monasticism, you might say, a a very different kind of Benedict option. He is not calling for Christians to enter in the monasteries. He is calling for Christians, and in particular lay Christians, to take up the challenge that comes at the conclusion of Alastair McIntyre's important book, After Virtue, now written decades ago, in which McIntyre says that the only hope for the existence of civilization, of the continuation of any kind of Western civilization and its values in the future, might be the rise of a new and very different Benedict. 
By the time you reach the end of the Benedict Option, you'll come to understand that Rod Dreher has been very carefully valuing Western civilization and its inheritance, its foundation, and its moral affirmations, and lamenting what it would mean for that civilization to collapse and disappear. But his concern is far more basic and fundamental than Western civilization. I think one of the most heartwarming aspects of this book is his absolute concrete concern for marriage and families and for living out that kind of life together in a way that is truly Christian. I appreciated every part of this conversation with Rod Dreher, but particularly the closing section of this conversation. And that's because we do need, without apology, to talk openly about what it means to learn from one another without affirming one another theologically. This is an issue of our evangelical responsibility, of our credibility and faithfulness. That is to say that the issues that have separated historic Protestantism from Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy are not ephemeral, they are not minimal, and they have not gone away. But that's also to say that we have a great deal to learn from one another without apology. There is no theological compromise in learning what can rightfully be learned from one another and from the entire history of the Christian church. This is where Christians need to think carefully about the fact that we can learn a great deal from non-Christians, that is to say, in terms of our understanding of the world, in terms of grappling with many contemporary issues. We can learn a great deal from those who make no claim to Christianity whatsoever, Furthermore, the great apologists of the Christian faith learned how to learn from those who are not only non-Christians, but often antagonistic to the Christian faith. Our doctrinal affirmations, our Christian identity, is often forged just as much in conversation with those who are outside of our tribe as those who are inside. And if it's true that we can learn from those who identify themselves as non-Christians, we can certainly also learn from those who are Eastern Orthodox and Roman Catholic without any compromise of our own theological convictions. At the same time, we have to be warned that one of the signs that we might be compromising those convictions is that if we fail to openly acknowledge them. It might be said by some that in a conversation like this, what we might hope for is that an evangelical, classical Protestant in conversation with someone who's Eastern Orthodox might be even more Protestant. I don't think that's enough. I think the goal of a conversation like this is that as a result of this kind of conversation, and that's not only a conversation in voice, but the conversation that takes place between a reader and a book, we might end up not only more committed to historical Protestantism, not only more Protestant, but more importantly, more faithful. And perhaps the best sign that a conversation has been fruitful and can lead you into being faithful is that you want the conversation to continue. I certainly want this conversation to continue. Thanks again to my guest, Rod Dreher, for thinking with me today. For more information on the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, go to sbts.edu. For information on Boyce College, go to boycecollege.com. Thank you for joining me for Thinking in Public. Until next time, keep thinking. I'm Albert Moeller.